Africa is a land with endless stories to tell. From epic battles, brilliant rulers, and the dramatic rise and fall of civilizations, join us on the History of Africa podcast to learn the too often unknown stories of the African continent. From the sands of Cairo to the plains of Zimbabwe, and from the mountains of Ethiopia to the forests of the Congo, find the History of Africa podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. A young boy stared into the fire. He listened quietly as an older man, the elder of the clan, spoke in soft whispers. The man's voice sang into the air as he recounted a tale as old as the stars. There was a tinge of sorrow, of melancholy, of sadness. The man regaled the children with tales of great heroes and mighty kings, of evil villains and tragic lords. He spoke harshly about a people from the rivers and sand, the mighty Assyrians. The old man hurled insults and screams at a people of the endless grass, the Scythians. And on and on did his tale go on for. And the whole time, the boy sat in silent contemplation. He wondered at the history of his own people, at their trials and follies. Their great victories and terrible failures. His people had been sundered, reduced to nothing but a life of subsistent wandering. They were harshly judged wherever they marched, scorned by those who lived in walls and towers. His people continued to wander with their flocks of animals to find new pastures between the ever-changing seasons. Even still, there was little for them, and their people dwindled slowly. The boy ventured a question to the elder. What did we do to deserve such a fate? Why are we casted aside, left to history to rot and waste away? What sin was ours? The man's eyes were soft, and for a moment they shimmered like the night stars. He opened his mouth and nodded. A thousand others have lobbed a thousand charges to us. Whether they are true or not, I cannot say, but I can say this. The elder turned to the rest of the tribe. There were only a few dozen of them left. They had a modest number of animals, of sheep and cattle, though perhaps they all knew that their time was coming to an end. Even still, the man spoke. For all that we and others have done, let it be known this. We existed, and our presence was known. We once ruled the lands from the valleys to the hills. We rode forth upon mighty steeds and spread fear and courage throughout the land. Though we are diminished and dwindled, we have done as we did and will live as we ought. Though we are to be left to the ruin of history, we have made our mark. We, the Chimerian people, will forever live in the annals of time. 
And with that, the man turned away and stared off into the hills of the Anatolian Plateau, mesmerized by the sight of lands that had once been theirs. Welcome back to the Nomads and Empires podcast, episode 12. Today, we say goodbye to the Camarians. We have been following their movements since episode 8 now, and after our brief journey with them, we must bid our farewells. But not just yet. That would be getting ahead of ourselves. So let's recap. By the 630s, the Camarians still seem to be a strong player on the world stage. As we noted on the last episode, the Camarians at the time were probably divided into a number of different tribes and polities, with some acting as mercenaries in Assyrian and Urashian armies, while others behaving antagonistically toward these Near Eastern powers. One particular group was led by a man named Tugdame, who has been named King of the Saka and the Gudian. Another name ascribed to Tugdame was Shar Kishadi, or King of the World. Evidently, Tugdame likely represented the most significant Cimmerian leader in the region, and under his reign, the Cimmerians would attempt a number of key invasions. These include one or several invasions of the Kingdom of Lydia. These invasions highlight to us the strength of Tugdame's leadership and hint at pretty keen charismatic skills. In one of these attacks, the Cimmerians allied with a people known as the Treris and it is possible that other groups joined in an anti-Lydian coalition. From the 640s to the 630s, Lydia would suffer from repeated invasions and raids. Several Lydian kings, such as Artis and Sadiates, were probably killed by the Camarians. It would be left to a young prince named Alietes to pick up the pieces and oust the Camarians once and for all. But we aren't there yet. At this point in time, we have a pretty good, if somewhat vague, understanding as to the areas of Cimmerian control in the mid-7th century BCE. Through their invasions of Phrygia and Lydia, the Cimmerians almost certainly maintained a presence in the lands of central and western Anatolia. According to the scholar Selim Ada, the Cimmerian heartland may have been the Konya Plain. Assyrian documents point to some Cimmerian rule over the land of Cilicia as well. There also probably remains some Cimmerians along the Urashian frontier to the far east of the Anatolian peninsula. The decline of Urartu remains a mystery, and though names like the Scythians and the Medes are the ones most commonly associated with the polity's collapse, one cannot rule out the possibility of an ambitious Cimmerian chieftain seeking vengeance on the Orations once and for all. Now, I use the term vague when talking about Cimmerian control over parts of Anatolia because the nature of controlling territory in this period of time cannot be equated to our modern conceptions of land and conquest. In a lot of instances, we are talking about territory where settled polities, such as the Phrygians, ruled urban settlements, and where the Cimmerians operated in the nearby pasturelands and hills. In other instances, Cimmerian rulership may have been stronger, with various cities, towns, and villages offering tribute to their nomadic ruler. I would also imagine in other cases, some Cimmerian individuals may have settled down, residing in sedentary areas as well. 
Again, I think the best way to consider this area is one of fluidity, where various groups may equally claim the same area and occupy it simultaneously but with different purposes and uses. In fact, this is a helpful point to make, as we should really understand this dynamic for future episodes. Here, we are forced to ask ourselves the very definition of a nomadic state, as the Cimmerians offer us a first glimpse at why such a term may be difficult. When most individuals think of this term, there is a conception of pure nomadism, where groups pitched yurts and gurs and played music on modern hurs and moved from pasture to pasture and were led by a chief such as a khan. This conception, full of generalizations, has never been really correct. As defined by Salim Ada, an associate professor at the University of Ankara, quote, The nomadic state is a state with territorial boundaries, pastoralist and urban elements, structures of authority operated by rulers of tribes and the military elite, and finally, a ruling dynasty, unquote. Note here that elements of pastoralism exist, but are not the most defining characteristic, and that there is indeed an urban element to this. The Cimmerians, quote, were agro-pastoralists who controlled and managed urban landscapes and territorial boundaries, unquote. We see evidence of this multifaceted societal structure in the work of Claudia Cheng. We've referenced her work before, and I am going to dedicate an entire episode on this later, but her archaeology has shown to us that nomadic states often did include fully sedentary and semi-sedentary populations that were deeply connected to the overarching steppe nomad structure. The Scythians will be no different. With such a definition in mind, I now want to segue into a consideration on what life may have been like in Cimmerian Anatolia. We have some specific details, once again derived from Assyrian documents. However, we can also extrapolate on other points by the experiences of other nomadic groups that would come to call Anatolia home as well. For the average Anatolian, life under the Cimmerians could range from completely transformative to, well, not meaning much at all. It is probably accurate to consider that the Cimmerian presence was a minor one, at least from a population perspective. Turkic migrations from the 1000 CE can provide a good parallel, as in the rise of the Seljuk Empire, around a million Turks entered Anatolia. I am cautious about the figure, but the point is this. Despite this influx, the Turkic nomads were not the largest ethnic group in the region, and though they maintained a heightened sociopolitical position, a smattering of Greeks, Armenians, and other peoples resided in the Anatolian Peninsula and maintained their customs well into the Ottoman era. We can estimate a similar case here for the Cimmerians. In their invasions and raids of Lydia, Phrygia, Cilicia, and so forth, the jure control over a territory was likely limited. We noted this already. The Cimmerians, therefore, may have resorted to coalition building with various players within the Anatolian peninsula to maintain power. We already know of their alliances with the Treris and the Lycians, but the Cimmerians also supported a number of city-states in Anatolia and the ancient Near East. In episode 11, we mentioned how the city of Tabal received Cimmerian assistance to fend off Assyrian advances. Within Cimmerian territory in Anatolia, a similar system emerged 
where the Cimmerians appointed city lords who ruled over urban centers. Assyrian documents refer to these lords as Bel'ali, which connotates a military and political figure who ruled over a defined territory. Such city lords and major nomadic leaders coalesced together into a sort of council that may have assisted Cimmerian leaders like Tugdame. Political science conceives of two types of step-state formation, with one of the forms being, quote, Between the steppe tradition and the sedentary tradition, where steppe rulers were intimately involved in state-making, but where rulers eventually came to be drawn from the sedentaries, unquote. This is likely the political configuration of the Cimmerians under Sindakshitra sometime in the 640s to the 630s. Sure, the Cimmerians had faced some defeats, and the loss of Tugdame represented a major setback, but by this point, the Cimmerians were entrenched in Anatolia. The Assyrians had lost major credibility in the region due to their inability to defend their clients from the Cimmerians. Tugdame's successor, if he could play his cards right, was at the precipice of creating a truly major political power. All Sindakshitra had to do was make the correct move. Tugdame, as we may remember from the last episode, was rallying men for a raid into Assyria, but passed away from illness before this could transpire. Sindakshitra evidently wished to continue his father's goals. The Assyrians were still perceived to be weak, and a successful raid would provide a major propaganda victory for the new ruler. If he could prove his merit as a warrior and as a provider of loot, then surely Sennachshitra's hold on power would be secure. The Cambridge Ancient History dates the next Cimmerian campaign to either 635 or 625 BCE. It's not exactly clear if this was an Assyrian counteroffensive into Cilicia or if this was an Assyrian defense mounted against a Cimmerian incursion. In either case, we know something striking. The Assyrians called upon a very important ally, the Scythians. The Scythians were led by a chieftain named Marius, who was the son of a previous chief named Bartuda. Furthermore, Marius's mother may have been an Assyrian princess, specifically the daughter of Esarhaddon. Thus, Marius and his band of Scythians were likely an Assyrian vassal. Matthias is an incredible figure in his own right, having marched his forces across the Near East, fighting battles near Egypt and Persia, but we'll talk about him more in a future episode. The battle between Matthias of the Scythians and Sennachshitra of the Cimmerians proved to be decisive. Matthias was backed by the Assyrians and may have received support from the Lydians of Alietes. Sennachshitra received aid and men from the Treris. Once again, we have very little information on the battle that took place, but I can imagine it featured a heavy amount of cavalry, mounted archers, and skirmishers. Arrows probably peppered the air, while Assyrian heavy infantry did their best to shield themselves and force down the Cimmerian horsemen. The battle was probably rough, difficult, and grueling, but in the end, a victor was declared. The Scythians won the day, pushing the Cimmerians back into Anatolia. The Cimmerians, badly defeated, were still not fully annihilated. It is unclear if Sindakshitra survived the battle, but if he did, he probably returned to Anatolia to re-establish his presence, maintain control, and stabilize the situation. 
Evidently, the damage to the Chimerians was so severe that many of our secondary sources cite this battle as the end of the Chimerians. However, this isn't necessarily the case. One final battle remains before this journey is over, and to discuss this development we must now move our focus. We'll leave Sindakshitra to lick his wounds while we now return to the kingdom of Lydia and its ruler Alyetes. Moving our timeline back to the 640s, we are reminded by the fact that Lydia and its capital Sardis had faced a number of Chimerian attacks. Sardis was burned and several Lydian kings had perished in unrelenting fighting. Alyetes, in many ways similar to Rusa I and Sargon II, was born in an era of chaos and turmoil. And like the other two figures, Alyetes would be responsible for the revival of his state into a major polity. Upon ascending the throne, Alyetes set off on a number of major reforms. Alyetes is probably known for establishing electrum coins in Lydia, among other economic initiatives. Following the steps of his ancestor Gygus, Alyetes also began to foster relations across the known world. Trade between the Greek peninsula and Lydia flourished, and gold mines in the area of Aternus and Paragmum were well exploited. Alyetes was known to build a number of structures including temples and fortifications. As recounted by the scholar Christopher Roosevelt, quote, at no other time in the Lydian and Achaemenid periods did Sardis see the same flurry of urban building projects. Unquote. Of course, Alyetes knew that the Chimerians were operating throughout the area, and his foreign and military policy reflected this looming threat. Interestingly, Alyetes appears to have reformed his army by adapting a number of Chimerian tactics. Archery became a renowned skill among the Lydians. The usage of cavalry was heavily promoted, and a generation later, during the reign of Alyetes' son Croesus, we are told by Herodotus that, quote, There was at this time no people in all of Asia who were braver or more valiant soldiers than the Lydians. Their fighting was from horseback, where they carried great lances, and they were themselves excellent horsemen, unquote. Another Greek source, that of the poet Mimnermus, tells us that the Lydian horsemen would form ranks and fire arrows into the enemies. However, the Lydians did more than copy Chimerian tactics. The Lydians adapted their martial prowess in other directions as siege weaponry became especially important and would be used to devastating effect in Anatolia. The inclusion of steppe tactics made the Lydian army into a war machine. They were mobile and swift but also capable of long and protracted sieges and maneuvers. These developments came at the right time. Before confronting the Chimerians, Alyetes was first beset by a war with the people known as the Milesians. This particular war was actually one started by his father Sedyetes, and Herodotus remarks that Alyetes had inherited the conflict. But as we said, the Lydian army was a war machine. Quote, Alyetes invaded and attacked Miletus in this way. As soon as the corn was ripe, he invaded the country. He would march into the music of pipes and harps and flutes, treble and bass, and as often as he came into Melissean territory, he would cast down no houses in the countryside, nor would he burn any or wrench the doors off, but let all stand in place. But the trees and the crops of the land he would destroy." Unquote. 
Herodotus further explains that this tactic of burning crops, but not homes, was engineered so that the Milicians could return to their land and attempt to till the burned soil. Once crops flourished again, Alietes would return, once more taking the grain and burning the fields, but leaving the homes spared. It is said that Alietes used this tactic for five years before finally signing a peace treaty with the Milicians. But Alietes was not content with subduing Miletus. He waged additional wars against his Anatolian neighbors, including the peoples of Ionia and Caria. One key event involves the city of Smyrna, which was evidently destroyed. The destruction of Smyrna may have occurred after the Lydian Camaran conflict, but what we find there is a good perspective on the changes taking place in the Lydian army. Archaeologists have found a siege mound near the city, revealing to us that the Lydians used slingers and archers as the bulk of their force. Interestingly, Lydian arrowheads could still be found on the walls of several mud-bricked homes. Through these conquests, Alietes consolidated Lydia into a territorial empire. Land was secured and fortified, areas of control were more delineated, and resource gathering appears to have become more centralized. The Cambridge ancient history speculates that through these wars of conquest and loot, the Lydians were able to stabilize their own frontiers and may have allowed the Lydians to develop manned fortifications in the lands of Phrygia. A stronger presence in Phrygia would provide the Lydians with more resources, including horses, precious metals, and grain. In fact, Alietes' key strategy seems to have revolved around the consolidation and securitization of his resources. Just before the final lydian Camarian battle, Alietes stationed his son Croesus as the governor of Adramidium, an area known for its gold medals and an area adjacent to a major Camarian center. By co-opting Camarian tactics into the Lydian military, by consolidating his territory and resources, by centralizing his government and promoting economic development, Alietes had readied the kingdom of Lydia into a confrontation with the Camarians. I don't think Alietes conducted these acts to solely deter the Camarians, but I do think every policy and political development would help the Lydians in their final confrontation. And so, we have reached the end. Sometime in the late 600s, the Lydians and Camarians met again on the battlefield. We have very few details here, fewer even than the ones between the Camarians and the Scythians. We can imagine that a few years or a decade had passed since the conflict between Matthias and the Camarians. We can also probably imagine the Camarians were still licking their wounds, attempting to rebuild an army. A sizable portion may have been new to warfare, perhaps good writers, but inexperienced in the art of war. What led to this final battle, I can't say though some secondary sources speculate this was at Assyrian urging. The Lydian army would match the Camarians with horsemen and archers. Arrows probably pelted the air on both sides. Light cavalry would chase off skirmishers and bowmen. Heavier cavalry, armed with lances, fanned to the wings. The fighting could have been long and difficult, with both sides pushing one another in a tug-of-war until one side broke and fled. Or. The fighting could have been quick and decisive, with one side ordering a key charge that pushed the other into a significant rout. We're merely speculating here. We have no details. 
But by the end of this battle, the Cimmerians had sundered and were no longer a political power. Their years of existence in the Near East had collapsed. By the end of the 7th century BCE, the Cimmerians were no more. Under the reign of Alietes, the kingdom of Lydia had finally secured their vengeance. In the words of Herodotus, quote, It was Alietes who waged war upon Syaxares, the descendant of Diocese and the Medes, and he, Alietes, who chased the Cimmerians out of Asia, unquote. After defeating the Cimmerians, Alietes would continue to rule Lydia for some time. Let's just briefly go over the last years of Alietes before coming back to the Cimmerians one last time. After this battle, Anatolia probably was beset by a power vacuum that an incredibly strong Lydia could exploit. In response, Alietes turned eastward. Lydian influence over Phrygia increased in this time. Lydian coins and goods in Phrygian cities like Gordium hint at a heightened trade presence and possibly even a tributary relationship. Herodotus tells us that during the time of Alietes' son Croesus, the Lydians ruled over a number of peoples including the Paphlagonians and Bithynians, and we can assume that some of these groups had been subjugated during the reign of Alietes. The Lydian state had become a cosmopolitan one filled with a number of peoples all connected in various Anatolian trade routes and buoyed by Lydian coinage. As the Lydians progressed further and further eastward, other states become increasingly worried. Our friends, the Neo-Assyrian Empire, had fallen in the late 600s to the Neo-Babylonian Empire and the Medes, and it would be the Medes who became worried at this ascendant Lydia. Around 590 BCE, King Syaxares of the Medes expelled a number of Scythians from his territory. These Scythians fled into Lydian territory, seeking protection from Alietes. The Lydian king agreed to this, an act that inflamed Syaxares. The Median king demanded Alietes return the Scythians, but Alietes refused. Using this as a cast's belly, the Medes declared war on the Lydians. The war would last five years, only ending in 595 BCE after a great battle occurred. We are told that in the final battle, a solar eclipse darkened the sky and spread fear among the Lydian and Median ranks. Seeing this as an omen, Alietes and Syaxares signed a peace treaty. Alietes would marry his daughter to Syaxares' son, and peace was agreed. Now, in a final postscript, the Cimmerians raise their heads one more time. Although Herodotus only mentions Scythians as having been expelled by the Medes, the Cambridge Ancient History suspects that Cimmerian bands were probably in this group as well. A group of Cimmerians had been mercenaries for the Assyrians and did operate in territory controlled by the Medes. It is probable that Cimmerian riders had acted as mercenaries for the Medes and had fought in the Median War against Assyria and had been expelled by Syaxares. The Cambridge Ancient History remarks rather keenly that the Cimmerians probably played a role in creating conflict and disruptions in this time. But after this last episode, we can conclusively state that the Cimmerians as a political entity are no more. We have no other mention of their activities or movements. The Cimmerian sojourn has ended. I want to now take the last few minutes to consider the Cimmerians on a broader scale. 
Though they seem to have disappeared in the historical record, their influence can still be felt. As Herodotus says, quote, Even today, in this Scythian country, there are Cimmerian walls, a Cimmerian ferry, a part of the country called Cimmeria, and what is called the Cimmerian Bosporus, unquote. Anatolian polities became directly impacted by the Cimmerians, and some, such as the Lydians, adapted their weapons and tactics to devastating effect. The Cimmerians became ingrained in the cultural memory of the ancient Greeks, who perceived this group as one of the primordial evils of the world. The Cimmerians, though their reign was brief, would have a cultural impact lasting generations. But this is only part of the story. For our own narrative, the Cimmerians represented a number of first in recorded history. Their origins in the Cyan Altai region and their movements westward into the steppes of Kazakhstan and Ukraine epitomized later steppe movements. Scythians, Turks, and Mongols all made the same journey from the eastern steppe to the western steppe. But the Cimmerians went further than that. Through tragic circumstances or opportunistic desire, the Cimmerians made their way south through the Caucasus, a move that would be echoed by later steppe polities like the Khazars. They would make their way even further, splitting into a number of directions and ending up in Anatolia, a story that is rhymed by various Turkic groups in the 11th century CE. The Cimmerians became mercenaries, the Cimmerians developed political institutions, and the Cimmerians became a fixture in the political world of the Middle East. And importantly, the Cimmerians can claim to be the first, at least in recorded history, to have done such acts. Though the Cimmerian presence in secondary literature, in sweeping histories of the steppe and its peoples, is short, spanning no more than a few pages at most, their impact is immense. Their horses were renowned, their arrows spread fear. Their continued struggle after setbacks and military defeats highlights a tenacity that in many ways is unrivaled. And so, I think we can consider the Cimmerians as an important bridge. They are the ones that push us from the realm of prehistory into that of written history. Rather than discussing archaeological cultures like that of the Tagar and the Karasuk, we are given a name, provided sources on their existence, and are shown intimate details on their lives. Now, the Cimmerians never provided us with a full picture. Things were fuzzy, dates were inconsistent, and accuracy often was plagued by speculation and historical biases, but at least we were given something tangible. As we move forward, we enter further and further into the realm of historical authors. And now, we move forward. The step continues on and on. As we end our time with the Cimmerians, we now ride into the history of the Scythians, a people who we've danced around briefly so far, but have yet to fully dive into. The Scythians are by far an even more influential group in the minds of the Greco-Roman authors. We have substantially more information, we have a variety of scholars and academic works, and we have even more historical interactions to examine. The Scythians will be involved with the Persian Empire. They will have relations with the Greco-Bosporan Kingdom. They will have splinters like the Saka and the Sarmatians. It's time to say goodbye to the Cimmerians and welcome the Scythians. In the next few episodes, we're going to take a break from the historical narrative. 
Instead, we'll examine the Scythians broadly by looking at their historiography and other overarching topics. I want to dedicate an entire episode to Scythian arts and culture, another episode to religion, and another to their many subdivisions. By setting this groundwork now, we can have a better picture of the Scythians as a whole and why historical developments occurred the way that they did. Finally, I also want to announce that I'll be releasing some bonus episodes. These bonus episodes will explore some of the folk tales, legends, and stories of the Eurasian steppes, but also of the peoples adjacent to it. Through retellings and context, I hope to shed light on figures like Didi Korkut and Manas. So do keep an eye out on that. Otherwise, that's it. As always, please reach out to me with questions, concerns, corrections, and so forth on nomadsandempires at gmail.com. You can also find my Twitter at nomadempirespod for updates and other historical finds. It's been an amazing journey so far, and I hope to see y'all again in the next chapter. Next time, we dive into the world of the Scythians. Thanks as always, and see you on the windy plains of the Eurasian steppe.